pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A wise man once told me, the longest journey a man can make is from his head to his heart. From my own personal experience and my experience in the ministry, I believe this to be true. I also believe it to be true based on the text and the series that we've been doing in Marks 8 through 10, the journey of discipleship. In this series, the Lord has been showing us what it means to make the journey of a disciple. Repeatedly, Mark records the phrase, on the way, on the road, along the path. Jesus is on the way through the villages of Caesarea Philippi when he asks them, who do men say that I am? Jesus is on the way, going up to Jerusalem, when he tells them he must die. They are on the way when a blind man is healed and joins them on the way to Jerusalem. And here in our text today, there's a man they meet along the way. Chapter 10 begins the last leg of the journey as they have now made it from Caesarea Philippi through Galilee and south. Now they're on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that this is the last leg before he must die. It is here that the man is using his last leg to run to Jesus, kneel down, and ask him this question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This question is about the journey. It's mostly about the destination, but it's also about the journey. Not just that we are moving our feet to get from Galilee to Jerusalem. That is happening, but it's not the only thing happening. There's actually a journey that is changing our minds and hearts. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world on his journey? through life, yet he loses his own soul. Truly, Jesus is showing the journey of discipleship is a spiritual journey, and he wants the man to understand that, to understand what he's really asking. Because this journey from the head to the heart is to understand Jesus. And in order to understand Jesus, this man has to rewire the way that he's thinking about this question. There is something that the man still lacks, and he just doesn't know it. And we'll see this in three ways. First, he needs to understand what he is asking to Jesus. Then he needs to understand what Jesus is asking him. And finally, He needs to understand what Jesus alone can give him. Something that he cannot possess because he's thinking about this path to heaven as something he can possess, things he can do, things he can have to show in his life. 
boxes he's checked. But the last thing that he lacks is not something that he can possess. It's something he must receive from Jesus. Truly, the man was seeking answers. We should not fault the man right away for asking this question. He's running to Jesus, he's kneeling down, and he's asking an important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But where he is not quite there yet is he doesn't understand the question itself. So the first thing Jesus is doing is to have him look at the question. And Jesus, as a good teacher responds to his question with another question. Why do you call me good? So rather than just answering the question right away, when a person is asking the wrong questions, Jesus asks a more important fundamental question. What makes something good? Take a teacher, for instance. I think most Christians in general, will agree, when you look at the public education system, from the bottom to the top to the universities and the professors, there are problems. In fact, there are major fundamental problems at the core of what builds the public education system and what makes it move. One of the fundamental problems is that the government lives by a philosophy in the educational system that disregards the belief that there is something objectively good, that there is objective truth, that there is something we can agree on that is beautiful. If it even exists at all, we certainly can't know it, especially when it comes to God. If an absolute objective God exists, there's no way we could know him personally. We see this highlighted in the study of origins, from where the whole philosophy of evolution came from. Random events making it impossible for us to say that anything in this world definitely has a design or a purpose. It's rooted and it's running throughout the system. Yet, at the same time, I think we could all agree that in that very system, and that very environment, there are good teachers. Even those who believe with all their heart that there is no God, that there is no truth with a capital T, would also say there are good teachers. Maybe you have had one, maybe you are one, or have been one. I remember going to the University of Wisconsin in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I had a few good teachers. One in particular was an art teacher. And at the time, of course, I was not knowing what I wanted to do as we all go through. And so I took an art class thinking maybe I wanted to be an architect. And in that art class, the teacher was teaching design perspective, beauty, and trying to teach us how to replicate that, how to produce something that had a good design, that had beauty to it, 
And he taught us some of those fundamentals about art, had us practice, and he knew that there was such a thing as a good drawing, which meant there was other things that were bad drawings, and I was good at those. You have probably remembered teachers that were good and teachers that were bad, and hopefully you've not, but maybe you've also known teachers that were evil. There are teachers that are evil. There are teachers who can disorder, who can twist what is supposed to be and what is supposed to be happening, and can do evil. There is such a thing as good, and there is such a thing as evil, and that's why Jesus says, why do you call me good? What makes me a good teacher? The man recognized there's something called good with a capital G. It's the source of all goodness. If anything is to be called good, it's because there is a good above it all. There is something to compare it to. There is something that contrasts what is a higher good from what is evil, what is not good. And that is what we find in God. As the book of James says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. God is the source of all that is good. And to this we can add that Jesus is the good teacher in a way that is even beyond what any of the teachers that you've had are good. Jesus is the good teacher because every other teacher finds his purpose and his goodness in Jesus. Not just that he's a good teacher, but that he is goodness incarnate, God himself, in teaching. Showing this man he needs to learn something about goodness, to make the journey from the head to the heart. So then Jesus says, if we're going to understand what goodness is, let's look at the Ten Commandments. And he begins unveiling the Ten Commandments because Jesus knows that the Ten Commandments are good. They're good because they reflect God's character, who God is, what it means to do good. He starts with the Fifth Commandment. If you want to write these down, they're right in the text, and they go in this order. Fifth, Sixth, Seventh, Eighth, and then one that's plugged in that we're not quite sure where to put it. He starts with the Fifth Commandment. Now, most people would start here. In fact, if you talk to the average non-church-going person on the street corner and you ask them, how many of the Ten Commandments do you know, most people start here. They start here because it's the easiest one to say you have kept. I've not killed anyone, at least not lately. Most people could say they've kept the fifth commandment. They remember that, and then they usually remember the next one, the sixth commandment, because they probably know they haven't kept that one. But some would say they have, maybe because they've never been married, so they could never be accused of committing adultery. But they'll hesitate there. What comes after that? Now people begin to wonder, what's the next commandment? The seventh commandment, do not steal. And then the eighth commandment, do not bear false testimony. Here it's getting tougher to find people who have kept these commandments. 
To this, Jesus adds a peculiar tagline on the end, and he says, do not defraud. Now, that doesn't fit into the Ten Commandments the way that this man would have been used to. Why does Jesus plug this in there? My guess is that because this man had so many possessions, he's so wealthy, could he have gotten so rich by strictly fair dealings? And Jesus combines the seventh commandment and the eighth commandment together and says, have you defrauded your neighbor? Have you taken advantage of someone else in order to gain for yourself? Have you tipped the scales? Have you lied in order to gain financially? How many of the wealthy could say they have kept this commandment? And then he goes backwards to the fourth, the one we probably skipped over on purpose, honor thy father and thy mother, because at some point, or many points, I think we've all broken this commandment. In fact, today, we break it to the point that we've reversed it, and we're more interested in honoring children's wishes instead of having children honor parents' wishes. That's backwards. Nevertheless, the man is able to say he's done quite well. He can say to Jesus, I have kept these from my youth. Whether this is really true or not, he says it. Now, most teachers at this point would give up. Most would be suspicious that this man is not being honest. Clearly, Jesus has an agenda. He has a place that he's trying to lead this man to by repeating the commandments. Most of us would get angry or impatient Because we expect the man to say, you know what, Jesus, you're right. I haven't kept these commandments. He's trying to get the man out of his head where he has rationalized what it means to be good. But the man's not there yet. In fact, we all need to get there beyond the analytic, beyond the measuring, beyond the surface thinking about rules into the spirit. This is the journey from the head to the heart. And this is what makes Jesus the good teacher. At this point, Jesus doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't get impatient. He doesn't leave the man and say, you're lost, you're hopeless, you'll never get it. Instead, he looks at the man intently in the eyes and he loves him. He looks at the man and he loves him. This is where Jesus goes beyond all other teachers because this is the point where all of the teachers have gotten frustrated and they've figured, let's just move on with the day. When we are being stupid, when we are caught up in ourselves, when we are blind to even asking the proper question that we should, Jesus loves us. He loves us even when we don't get it even when we are lying to ourselves. He loves this man, and he knows that you are seeking him. You've run to him, you've knelt down, you're asking questions. But now he knows he must be blunt. He cannot beat around the bush any longer, and he must tell the man what to do. You still lack one thing, he says. Here is what to do. Go home, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. 
and then come and follow me. The man's face turns down. He was so optimistic, so convinced that he was going to figure this out, but he had been unrealistic. He had been disillusioned. He had imagined that he was going to get an answer to his question in one way, and Jesus turns it upside down and shows him what he really needed to ask was something else. He was still lacking something. This is ironic since the man is so rich. What could he possibly lack when you see a person who is so successful, a rich CEO, and you might tell that man that he lacks something? Well, that man's going to find a way to get it. He's going to earn it, he's going to buy it, or he's going to find someone else to get it for him. But it couldn't be earned. It couldn't be bought. It could never be possessed. There was nothing he could do to gain this sort of life. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Which brings us to the next the point here, the second point Jesus is making not only to understand what Jesus is asking, but to understand what Jesus, or not only understand what we are asking Jesus, to, but to understand what Jesus is asking us. Understand the cost. Jesus is directing us now to the cost of discipleship. It is not what we imagined it might cost. It costs us something far dearer. Like the rich man, it would must be much easier for Jesus to just say, go and do this or that thing. But the man needs to get from what the commandment says to what the commandment means. The commandments deal more with more than just civil rules for our society. That's only on the perimeter. You shall not murder. That's just on the perimeter of the commandment. The outer layer. But it is the heart of the commandment that Jesus wants us to know, which is not just do not murder, but do not hate, or put positively, love. And Jesus takes the man to the ninth and tenth commandments here. Notice that Jesus has skipped the first and third, second and third commandment. Have no other gods. Keep the name of God holy. Remember the Sabbath. We could try to find a way around these commandments, but Jesus goes to the last commandment, the ninth and tenth commandment, because it is the one that we cannot get around, because it has no surface to it. It is directly to the heart, coveting. It is the last of the commandments because it has to do with the last thing that we all lack, contentment. At the end and in the final point, Jesus is showing that we lack contentment, which is basically faith, another way of saying faith, but it is contentment that is the opposite of coveting, because coveting means you're not content, you want something more than what you have, you imagine and envision a better you, a better life, being worth something more, being more happy, and you look for it in your belongings your image, your possessions, and it's where the man turns away sad. He's sad because he's lost in an illusion. The illusion is that we possess anything at all. We think we do. We're constantly checking up, 
on our bank account and our property. And from little on, we always know how to compare what's mine, what's yours. And if I only could be more like what they have, because they look happy, then I could be happy too. But happiness built on something that we don't have is always an illusion. It will never make us happy. It'll just be one more thing, but then we'll lack something else, and one more thing, and we lack something else. Contentment means being satisfied with what you have, regardless of what you don't have. What you might gain, but don't. What you might lose and do. You lose it, you gain it. It's all the same. In three weeks, we're going to jump from Mark to the book of Philippians. We're going to be doing, after Easter, a series in the book of Philippians. I'm going to be encouraging you to read ahead in the book of Philippians. And the book of Philippians is Paul's epistle of joy. It's about a man who says that he has finally found the secret. He has it all. He's gained it all. He's surpassed it all. And yet, this man is writing from a place where he has no possessions, no freedom, and he's locked in prison. Yet he can say he has it all. I'll just give you a preview from the book of Philippians, where in chapter 4, Paul says, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Goodness cannot be found in us. This goodness, this happiness we're looking for, Jesus is pointing us to the greater truth, and he says, it's impossible. It's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. Did you imagine trying to do that? A camel going through the eye of a needle is ridiculous. And yet God is saying that's what he's accomplishing when he teaches us to trust him. We are going through the eye of a needle. An impossible thing, but with what's impossible with us is possible with God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Goodness cannot be found in us. It has to be given to us. And Jesus is showing that he alone here finally is the one who can give what the man lacks. What the man doesn't even know he lacks. Goodness with a capital G. And he will do that more than just giving you some things to make you happy today. Instead, he gives himself something worth far more than this world could ever offer. He shows us that this is about his kingdom, his saving work, his fellowship, true happiness. He lays down his life, the greatest goodness, with a capital G, that the world has ever known. He becomes servant of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. And then we find what we lack. In Jesus, we find contentment in every circumstance. In Jesus, we find forgiveness 
for our hate, our lust, our stealing, our gossip, our defrauding. In Jesus, we love God as we ought to, to have no other gods before him, to let go of all the things that we've clung to, the idols in our life and in our hearts, and then we lay hold of the true treasure. No one has left father or mother or son or daughter or house or home or land. For my sake and the gospel, that does not receive a hundredfold more in treasures. And Jesus says you have it now, already in this life. And what is it? He says, look around. The fellowship you have in my church, in this congregation. Because for us who do let go and who do follow Jesus, there will come persecution. And the persecution will grow. I think now it is more real and pronounced and the lines are going to be drawn more clearly now than ever before. And we just can't fake it anymore. And that is a good thing. Because it will cost us. And for some, it will cost you your job. And there will come a point where Christians have to lose their job in order to stand for the truth. Where teachers, in particular, will have to lose their job to stand for the truth. But Jesus says, you will always have treasure. And the congregation you belong to will always support you no matter what trial no matter how poor, no matter what you've had to give up, you will always have this family. And this family will last into eternal life. A wise man once told me, David, the longest journey a man can make is from the head to the heart. Well, let's make that journey together with each other and with Jesus. Amen. Amen.